Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia. And I am flying solo today because my partner in uh, in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, uh, the Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, is actually on a staff ride in, in Europe. But I'm joined by a very special guest today, a former colleague in government, Paul Miller, who is a professor of the practice of international affairs and co-chair for global politics and security at Georgetown University who's got degrees from Georgetown and Harvard, was a director for Afghanistan at the National Security Council in the Bush 43 administration, an analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency and a military intelligence officer in the U.S. Army, uh, and the author of several uh, books, including uh, one favorite of mine, American Power and Liberal Order, and most recently, The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to the conversation, and uh, it's good to talk to you again. I'm looking forward to it as well. I want to start uh, with something you and I both worked on when we were in government and have followed uh, since, which is the war in Afghanistan that gets a little bit less attention nowadays than it did a a year and a half ago before the war uh, in Ukraine broke out. But in the last month, The Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, John Sopko, has published a report, very important report, I think, on the collapse of the Afghan security forces. And given your expertise, Paul, I thought we would kind of walk through what's in that report and explain to our listeners uh, what it tells us about the U.S. experience uh, in Afghanistan. So let me start with I think, the bottom line up front from this report, and see if you agree with it, which is that much as we did in Vietnam, we trained the Afghan National uh, Security and Defense Forces to be a mirror of the uh, U.S. military, particularly the U.S. Army. And so we trained them to fight the way we fight with exquisite intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance with combat air support from the Air Force when the going got tough, with contract support for maintaining a fleet of both rotary and fixed-wing aircraft, and well as vehicles to move forces around. And when, as a result of the Doha agreement reached by the Trump administration and then executed by the Biden administration, we pulled all of that out, suddenly uh, the Afghan National Security Forces were, A, unable to fight the way we trained them and taught them to, and B, deeply demoralized by U.S. actions, which led them essentially to collapse in the face of Taliban offensive. Does that ring true to you? Um, Yeah, that's about right. That's what the report says. And it's not terribly new or surprising, as, as observers like you and I knew well before 2021, this was likely to happen uh, if the United States made the decision to, to withdraw. Um, 
some folks place more blame on the on the decision to train the kind of Afghan army that we trained in the first place. Uh, that that to me is a bit more of an academic discussion. When you're looking at the situation in 2020 and 2021, and you want to preserve American interests intact, it's easy to recognize that the Afghan army was was fighting, had been fighting for 10 years with our support, with our air support, our intelligence, logistics, medevac, uh, with uh, resupply, with everything. But they were fighting, and they had been fighting and holding the line for 10 years, 66,000 Afghan soldiers killed in action over 10 years. Uh, and when we pulled our support, they made a very rational decision that they could not win the coming battle. And every Afghan soldier had to choose whether they were going to essentially go on a kamikaze mission and try to carry on a, on a, on a fruitless fight or go home and be with their families and, and accept the Taliban takeover. And I don't begrudge the individual Afghan soldiers the choice to go and be with their families and live, uh, you know, cho choose life. So that's what happened. It was very predictable. It was predicted. And it is what happened. Cigar has now put it down on paper. It just says, you know, we were right when we predicted this would happen. Uh, so nothing terribly surprising there, but it is what we thought it was. Yeah, and it wasn't just people like you and me who had been following this uh, closely. It was, it was a lot of other people uh, as well. Congress chartered an Afghan study group um, that was co-chaired by uh, General Joe Dunford, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as, and former commander in Afghanistan, commanding general. And um, Nancy Lindbergh, the former president of the U.S. Institute of Peace and now president of the San Francisco uh, Bay Area World Affairs Council. And that report suggested that you could have this kind of collapse uh, if the United States pulled its forces out. So the Biden administration, of course, uh, was forewarned of this uh, as you know a result, not just by people like you and me, but others. Yet they decided that they were going to go ahead and carry out policy that was actually initiated by the Trump administration. And so just to show that on Shield of the Republic, we are equal opportunity abusers and perfectly happy to be bipartisan in our condemnation of policies we don't agree with. I mean, how much stock do you put in the Biden administration argument that they really were stuck with the Doha deal that the Trump administration had struck with the Taliban, uh, signed by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in February of 2020. How much were they stuck with that? And how much opportunity did they have to modify or walk away from, from that agreement? So it's absolutely true that the Biden administration was dealt a bad hand. And it's also true that they played it badly. Uh, they, uh, when they took office, there was 19 years of mistakes behind them. Some of them, by the way, made and championed by, by Joe Biden when he was vice president for, for Barack Obama. But there was 19 years of mistakes behind them, and it was very difficult to see a way forward. And they did the worst possible thing in that situation. Instead of staying to try to fix some of the mistakes, they just very abruptly left. Uh, Joe Biden comes into office promising to undo Trump's legacy. And I, I, I cheer on quite a lot of that. And yet the one thing that he kept from Trump's presidency was the Doha agreement with the Taliban. I just find that baffling. I think it was very clear from the get-go that the Doha agreement was not a path forward to secure American interests. It was just papering over an American exit. Now, 
Trump administration officials disagree with that. They have their own claims. They say that Doha was sustainable and all that. And you and I can talk about the merits of Doha, but I think that it was pretty flawed. So it's confusing to me why that was the one thing of Trump's legacy that the Biden administration chose to keep intact and to execute with a about a four-month delay. Uh, I think it was easy for them. They could have chosen otherwise. They, they were not bound by Doha. No one believed the Taliban was abiding by the terms of Doha. Even the United Nations put out a report saying that the Taliban continues to cooperate with al-Qaeda, and that was in the summer of 2020, I believe. So when you have that continuing cooperation with international terrorism, pretty easy to repudiate the agreement and say, Taliban aren't living up to the deal, neither are we, we're staying, and we're going to keep on the fight. I do want to talk a little bit about the Doha agreement and dig into it with you. First, there is the issue of whether or not the Taliban were abiding by their undertakings. And I do think there's a salutary lesson to be taken away from this debacle, which is that allowing agreements to go unfulfilled uh, or allowing non-compliance with diplomatic agreements is never a good idea uh, because it has all sorts of downstream consequences. But moreover, one of the points that the Special Inspector General report makes is that there were a lot of side agreements to this agreement, side letters, understandings that were apparently reached between the American negotiators and the Taliban without ever informing the government of Afghanistan. I mean, one can argue that from the get-go, Doha was flawed because the government of Afghanistan was not a party. They weren't sitting at the table and their fate was being decided by the Taliban and, and the U.S. delegation under our former colleague Zal Khalilzad uh, as the special envoy and then later Secretary Pompeo, who actually uh, you know, signed the agreement. To me, this is sort of the, the real you know, stunning diplomatic malpractice of all this is that bad enough that the you know Afghan government wasn't there, but to compound it by apparently never sharing with them the actual terms that had been agreed, the actual undertakings that the Taliban had reached, uh, seems to me really kind of stunning. And I find it also incomprehensible that in the wake of the withdrawal and the collapse that the Biden administration did not make available to the Special Inspector General, the text of the side letters and the memorializing of these other oral undertakings by the Taliban uh, to the Special Inspector General. It'll be interesting to see whether the congressionally appointed Afghanistan Commission gets access to those documents. But do you too, Paul, see this as sort of diplomatic malpractice of the worst kind? As you know, I'm writing a book about the war in Afghanistan, and I've interviewed a lot of policymakers, including yourself. And in my conversations with former Trump administration officials, there's a narrative that has emerged. Uh, and I'll try to, I'll try to uh, give, do justice to it and tell you what the Trump administration says about Doha. I don't agree with it. I think it's uh, wrong, but let's, let's give the narrative its due. And then I'll kind of explain where I think it's not, not right. There, there was actually an ongoing conversation within the Trump administration about what the goal actually was in Afghanistan. What were they trying to accomplish with Doha? And they even disagree on what Doha actually said, what it meant. Um, here's the best possible defense of it. Right? They would say that uh, the Doha agreement uh, did not obligate the United States to completely fully withdraw all troops and that the United States was able to keep behind 
a counterterrorism force and an embassy protection force that allowed us to maintain our interests. And then it was the later Biden team that then pulled the plug entirely. They will also say that the Taliban was eager to partner with the United States in counterterrorism, uh, which is, I think, true against ISIS, ISIS-K. Um, and since that was the case, the Taliban actually seemed to be a better partner than the Afghan government, because the Afghan government was corrupt and incompetent. Right. So that's what the Trump administration officials will say about Doha. Now, I think that's a little disingenuous. The text of the Doha agreement does say complete withdrawal. It does say that. And whether or not there was this wink and not understanding that complete withdrawal allows for a stay behind force of 2,500 troops for counterterrorism, the text just doesn't say that. And it's super easy for the Taliban to say, look, you can't keep any troops here. And by the way, it was easy for the Biden administration to say that, to point to the text and say, look, we're just following the Doha agreement. Um, Doha is pretty evidently to me papering over an American withdrawal. And that's what it was intended to do. That's what it actually did do. And so efforts to retrospectively make it into something more substantial with more teeth than it actually had are unpersuasive. Uh, so yeah, a diplomatic malpractice. Yeah, I think it was, it was a poorly structured deal with very few enforcement mechanisms that were not actually enforced over the following year and that did actually allow our enemies to triumph and us to, to lose. Uh, it's, it, the, the proof is in the pudding. Look what actually happened after Doha was signed. So uh, I think it was, a, it was a poorly structured deal. So the blame certainly lies with Biden for his choice to follow through with the deal, but the blame also lies with the Trump administration for signing a bad deal in the first place. Yeah, I agree. And let me add two other points to that recitation, which I think bolster your argument. One is the episode at the tail end of the Trump administration, which ultimately led to Mark Esper's resignation as Secretary of Defense, which was uh, after the election, the president uh, attempting uh, before um, he had to leave office to rush a final withdrawal of all U.S. troops out. So if the objective of the Trump administration wasn't to get all our troops out, why was the president, uh, when he thought he was running out of time, scrambling to try and uh, enforce a total evacuation of our of our troops. Second point is the Biden administration decided to keep the Trump administration's negotiators, Al Khalilzad, on as, as the negotiator with the Taliban. I don't think Zal would say that the agreement actually allowed us to keep troops there because he seems to have agreed that all U.S. troops were going to going to leave. So it, it seems to me very hard to sustain this argument. I know Secretary Pompeo tries to do this, but like you, I find it totally unpersuasive. I want to go to one of the issues about the uh, performance of the both Afghan government and the Afghan national defense forces. You know, I, I found it really off-putting when President Biden complained that the Afghans were uh, not willing to fight for their own freedom. When, in fact, as you point out, for the last four or five years of the conflict, they were bearing the brunt of the fighting. I mean, U.S. casualties in the last several years were, I believe, in single digits uh, from combat-related uh, fatalities in Afghanistan. And the Afghans were taking quite considerable casualties, actually, in, in the fight. But moreover, it comes out in the SIGR report, the Special Inspector General report, 
that the Afghan government probably wasn't preparing adequately for the U.S. withdrawal, in part because of their own fecklessness. There's no way that one can, you know, pretty that up. But by the same token, they were very uncertain about what was going to happen, in part because they were told that this uh, agreement was conditional on uh, certain Taliban behavior. And they kept waiting for the U.S. government, either under the Trump administration or the Biden administration, to hold the Taliban to account, uh, which never happened, much to their surprise and shock after having been told repeatedly that it would be conditions based. Does that, to your, in your view, mitigate to some degree the lack of planning and the poor performance of the Ghani government? Again, I don't want to give, I don't want to give them, you know, too much of a pass here. But it, it does seem to me there is some merit in saying that they were really betrayed in that sense. Yes. Now I'll make a distinction between the Afghan army and the Afghan civilian government. I think the Afghan army, I, I would almost entirely exonerate them for their decisions, right? They really did stand and fight. And then when it became rational to not fight, they, they didn't fight. The civilian government uh, of Afghanistan was a, uh, not an effective partner because of their corruption and their incompetence. Um, could we have, uh, we should have looped them into the negotiations. And if we had, we would never have signed Doha. That's precisely why there was no effective negotiations prior to 2020, is because we rightly insisted that the Afghan government be part of it. The Obama administration tried. They, they had an, several outreaches. There was a prisoner swap in 2014. Uh, and the f negotiations continued to founder because the Taliban refused to negotiate directly with Kabul. Um, and I think that was the right posture to take. But it also meant no negotiations. Uh, once we excluded Kabul from the negotiations, it just simply meant we were handing we were, we were betraying their interests. Um, and, and so both of these things can be true. The Afghan government, corrupt and incompetent, and also we betrayed them in the negotiating with the Taliban. And the tr prisoner exchange that you mentioned is a particularly dark chapter, I think, here, because the ratio of prisoners released was something like five to one. We essentially put 5,000 Taliban fighters back into the field who violated their undertakings not to return to the battlefield and did. And in, in essence, we replenished the Taliban forces and set them up for the offensive that they launched in the late spring and, and summer of 2021. That's the later prisoner release in, after Doha. Yeah. There's a separate one under Obama. Yeah. What lessons do you think we should take from this? I mean, I, I'm you know mindful of the fact that uh, one of my predecessors as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Bob Comer, who was involved in the training of the ARVIN, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam during during the Vietnam War, wrote a, in policy walk circles, pretty famous study for RAND called Bureaucracy Does Its Thing, which recounts how the United States Army essentially trained the Vietnamese Army to be a replica of itself. I had read that study when I was Undersecretary. I, you know, I was kind of trying to poke and prod my colleagues and see Sticker, the training command in Afghanistan, and yet we seem to have just repeated the same thing again. How do we avoid that in the future? Should we find ourselves in a similar situation where we have to train host nation security forces? I mean, is there a way to do this that doesn't end up, you know, creating this military totally dependent on the kinds of, you know, unique support capabilities that we bring to the battlefield? 
All of the answers to all of your questions will be in the book that I hope to publish in a year or two. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> Very hard to boil it down to a couple of talking points, but you know, if there's lessons of the Afghan war, what you know, we were talking about negotiations. You just can't negotiate while also unilaterally withdrawing. Because then the enemy says, Why negotiate? We'll just wait until you're gone and then we get everything we want. And we did that, you know, we, we unilaterally withdrew in Vietnam, we did the same thing in Iraq, same thing in Afghanistan. So if you're going to fight, stay and fight. If you're going to leave, just leave and don't pretend to negotiate. Uh, but if you're going to negotiate, understand that fighting and negotiating are two sides of the same coin. It's the whole armed diplomacy uh, concept, right? You, you, you hold up the olive branch with one hand and the, and the mailed fist with the other hand. Um, so that's, you know, one lesson. Another big lesson of the whole Afghan war, and, and I, you know, I think that all four administrations got this wrong. Um, I think that we, we tended to gravitate towards an activity that was easily defined and measurable in counterterrorism because we built the best terrorist killing machine in world history and we could make dead terrorists real fast. And we gravitated away from the messy, complicated, uncertain, ambiguous thing of reconstruction, stabilization, counterinsurgency that's kind of hard and messy and bureaucracies don't do it well. And so we, we kind of shifted our attention away from that and didn't pay as close of attention. And when I say we, I mean the presidents and all the policymakers didn't want to do that messy stuff because it's hard to define and measure and succeed at. And we prioritized consistently over the years the easily defined and measurable thing of killing lots of terrorists. Hmm. And, and we succeeded after 20 years, killed lots of terrorists and never built the Afghan state. And in my view, the Afghan state was the, the precondition for long-term victory. You needed to build an Afghan state and an Afghan army capable of standing on their own for us to have long-term success against Al-Qaeda denying safe haven there. Uh, and we just got it backwards, you know, with the, 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 the condition for permanent victory, we never paid attention to it. Uh, and instead we did the short-term victory time and time and time again until we lost. Is it fair to say that because the stabilization counterinsurgency effort, traditionally people who do coin counterinsurgency say that 80% of the effort needs to be non-military and only 20% is military. You know, 20% provides security for the public, but 80% provide governance and services uh, to them as well. And that we never got the balance right. And part of the reason we didn't get the balance right, I mean, tell me if you agree or, or disagree, Paul, is that our government is not I mean, and I mean the whole government now, not just the executive branch, but the legislative branch as well, is not optimized to provide resources that way. I mean, because, you know, we tend to be more generous with resources for the Department of Defense than we are for the, you know, Agency for International Development, which actually is now just a kind of contracting vehicle. It's not really even a, an agency anymore. Um, or the State Department or other elements of government like the Agriculture Department that might have been able to really help in this endeavor. Yeah, I mean, here's a counterpoint. I don't think foreign aid is intrinsically impossible. Uh, I think there's examples in history where we've actually delivered foreign aid effectively and, and built stuff overseas. Um, it's hard to do in a country so dramatically poor as Afghanistan. And that's the, I think that's the real challenge is uh, how do you how do you build a highway in a country where the people who would maintain the highway are themselves illiterate? Uh, do you do a literacy training program first so they can read the instruction manual on the 
steamroller that they need to you know keep the highway paved <laughs> like it's it, there's prior problems this is so difficult to even begin such programs when the challenges are so formidable um, and that's why I think you need a lot of local ownership and a lot of local initiative and locally designed projects that's where I would go with this conversation I'd say how can we re-rejigger our foreign aid so that uh, locals on the ground are in charge of what the programs look like it's a small example in Afghanistan thing called the National Solidarity Program uh, that was up and running in 2005 to 11 or something, where local village councils said, hey, give us a block grant of $50,000 to drop in the bucket for us, and we're going to build a well, or we're going to, you know, flatten the road with with crushed gravel, or something, or we're going to pick up the garbage. And those programs were among the most effective in getting something done, employing young men, and spurring a little bit of economic life in the villages. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And, it, and it's, not a multi, it's not a $10 billion project, but those kinds of things might actually hold out promise for success when you, in this kind of context. Yeah, I know. You know, when I would speak publicly about Afghanistan, I would try and convey to audiences in the U.S. the scale of the challenge we were facing, because I think people don't really appreciate it. You know, when you told them that the per capita income in Afghanistan was about one-fifth the per capita income of Haiti um, when we <laughs> yeah. started. You know, I think it gives people some, you know, sense of the scale of the challenge. So I guess my question is, final question on Afghanistan before we turn to your terrific new book. Was this mission impossible? I mean, was it just, was the scale of this thing just so out of, you know, reach of the Americans uh, beyond our ability to control a lot of the variables. We had a, you know, safe haven, you know, building in a country that was nominally our ally in this struggle, but was clearly undermining our objectives by housing the Taliban and uh, allowing them to continue to operate out of their territory. And in that sense, you know, had the Biden administration not pulled out you know, would this be just an endless war or was this something which we could have managed at a, you know, reasonable cost over a long period of time, which is where I tend to come out. But I'm just curious where, where you come out on it. Well, you know, the, the posture we had achieved by 2015 or 16 or 17 wasn't ideal, but I think it was uh, defensible and sustainable. It, it wasn't great. It was a pretty suboptimal strategy, but at least it kept the lid on kept Kabul standing and kept the Taliban and Al-Qaeda on the back foot. And, and that's good enough for my money. Here's a different scenario, though. And here's what I'd hope to see the next time around we have to do something like this. You start earlier, but you go slower and lower and longer. What I mean is we, we didn't do we didn't invest a lot in state building in 2002, in 2003, even in 2004. And because we missed that golden window, that's why things trended poorly starting in 2005, six. So if you imagine for a minute that we actually started a lot of our big aid programs earlier, you don't have to, you don't have to have a $10 billion program. You know, you could have a $100 million program, but you start it early, you get that seed money in, and you sustain it at a low level, but you sustain it for a long time. You build relationships, and you, over the course of two decades, you know, you might actually see some real fruit. Uh, you know the old adage, we weren't there for 20 years, we were there for one year 20 times, which is what they said about Vietnam. Let's be there for 20 years. You know, Let's actually have some continuity and uh, of, of relationships, of personnel, of deployments, and of money 
Uh, and that's the kind of thing that could make a difference. Th that would be my recommendation to the next president who has to intervene and do something messy like this. And I, it'll happen. It, it'll happen in North Korea. Yeah. It'll, it'll happen. It, you know, it might be Ukraine, honestly. Post-war Ukraine, there will need to be a post-conflict reconstruction effort. Right. And it'll be led by the Ukrainians, but we're going to pay a lot of money for that, as we should. So let's keep these lessons in mind earlier, lower, slower, longer. Yeah, we, you know, did a lot to facilitate an election that, you know, got Karzai elected in 2004, but we didn't do much really to allow him to extend his authority outside the city limits of, of Kabul. Well, thank you for, for that. I want to turn to your book, The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism? And as I read this book, which is really terrific, uh, I could see that this was a very personal book for you. So tell our listeners how you came to, to write this book. Yeah, and, and I'll try to, there is actually a connection. You know, we were talking about international affairs and an intervention in Afghanistan. Foreign affairs, you can't really have an idea of foreign policy unless you have an idea of America's role in the world, which rests on a prior question. You know, what, what is American identity? Who are we as a country? What do we stand for? And that's what this book uh, about uh, Christian nationalism is about. It's about American identity and a spe specifically uh, America's relationship to Christianity. Right? There's obviously a strong historical connection there. Uh, even today, a majority, supermajority of Americans profess Christianity. And, and the, you know, we all know there's a strong influence. But what does that actually mean for American identity? Do we have to be a Christian nation to remain truly American. Um, and as I share in the first chapter of the book, I'm a Christian, I'm an American, I'm a patriot. Uh, it does, it, w you know, there's lots of Americans just like me who, who say yes, who say we've got to remain American, we've got to remain Christian, predominantly sort of Anglo-Protestant cultural heritage. If we're going to keep our freedom and keep our identity uh, and, and our sense of ourselves. And I actually think the answer is no. I, I would disagree with that. And that's what the whole book is about. I, I, you know, Christian nationalism is this idea that we not only are and have been a Christian nation, but, but, our, but we must remain. And our government has to make it a point of public policy to maintain a Christian identity for America. And I, I just think that's a, a, a mistake. Uh, it's a fool's errand. And it leads to all kinds of problems. And it's also not the vision of America that I think will inspire the world. I think what it means to be an American is about liberty and equality in the Constitution, the Declaration, all that stuff, and that's uh, universal. That is truly universal across time, lines of time and culture and religion, and uh, that's what we can hold up as an exemplar to the world. Yeah, I want to pull on that thread if I could. I mean, you talk in the book about Christian nationalism as a kind of form of cultural particularism as opposed to Christianity as a form of theological universalism. And it does strike me that that there is, uh, you know, that therein lies the connection, you know, between uh, what you're writing about with regard to American identity and our larger, you know, role in the world. Do we stand as a nation for uh, a set of ideals that uh, transcend uh, culture and language and uh, borders and boundaries, etc.? Could you talk a little bit about that? Because you also characterize yourself, I think think, and I feel the same way, not as a nationalist, but as a, as a patriot. And I think those are two really distinct things. But talk a little bit about the sort of the way that national particularism focused um, on certain traits 
actually undermines uh, both uh, the the nation's unity, but also its ability to project a role in the world. Yeah. So if you if you ask the question, what does it mean to be an American? A nationalist from any country is going to answer by talking about their particular culture, right? Uh, to be an American nationalist means to, as as Rich Lowry said in his book, to preserve the cultural nation. Right? There are certain features of our culture that that are unique to us, and we got to keep them that way. Uh, otherwise, we're no longer uh, ourselves, right? And so, uh, the essence of French culture is is the meaning of French identity in the French nation, and the government, the French government needs to subsidize and, and even mandate those things in order for France to remain France, right? So an, a nationalist talks about culture. And, uh, and I think the distinction is you and I would talk about creed rather than culture. We talk about the ideals, right? To us, what it means to be an American is to uphold the values, the ideals, the universal ideas of liberty and equality, which, which we believe are indeed universal. And I can recognize ways in which the creed came from the culture, which, again, the nationalists emphasize quite a lot, that, that perhaps uh, our... And it is, look, it's historically indisputable that uh, open societies originated in Western Europe. Uh, and so there's a, there's a tie there. The nationalists insist that that tie is indissoluble and the creed and culture go together forever and you can never separate them. I just look around the world and I see other examples of open societies outside of Western Europe and North America, places like Japan and India and places like Namibia and, uh, and about, about half of Africa and a good swath of, of Asia and most of the South Pacific are open societies today and they don't have a European or a Christian cultural heritage. So I think it's obvious that, that democracy or, or liberalism or human rights can be separated from their originating context in Christian Europe. And if that's true, we should champion those universal values uh, and that means also at home, we can be a bit more relaxed about cultural change. Uh, we are less Christian. We are less European than we've ever been. I don't think that means we're less American. I think that means uh, so long as we hold to the ideals of the Constitution, the Declaration, that we're as American as we ever have been, and we're successfully adapting to cultural change. And that's a good thing. Yeah, you know, you talk a little bit in the book about a political scientist uh, who I think both of us hold in high regard, the late uh, Samuel Huntington, whose final book, really, Who Are We?, uh, written about 20 years ago, you know, talked about the United States as a creedal nation coming out of this culture, Anglo-Protestant culture, and uh, raising concerns that continued uh, immigration, particularly Hispanic immigration from the hemisphere, would fundamentally change the character of of the nation. What has what struck me at the time, and what continues to strike me, and, and you kind of address Huntington in your book, is that in fact, if you look at Hispanics, I mean, they're increasingly they're, many of them are leaving the Catholic Church and becoming uh, evangelical Protestants. I mean, that, that's a very major change, and the Catholic Church itself. Uh, over time, which people believed in the 19th century was going to undermine the character of our Anglo-Protestant country as Irish and Italians and others from uh, Central Europe who were Roman Catholic uh, entered the country. That hasn't, I mean, the Catholic Church itself became very Americanized and adapted to to the uh, creed. So 
Do you want to talk a little bit about your critique of Huntington? Because I found it very compelling. Yeah, I mean, um, to pick up that point about the about Hispanics and about Latin America, one of Huntington's worries is that, at, uh, that we will lose our sense of ourselves, we'll stop being fully American, because Hispanic immigration will erode or undermine Anglo-Protestant culture, which he thinks is the fundamental basis of our open society. Which is, a, again, it's true that we're less Anglo and less Protestant than ever. Is our democ- Are we less democratic than ever? You know, you could say voting rates are just as fine as they ever were. If there's threats to democracy, and I think there are, it, they're not <laughs> they're not coming from Hispanics, right? You know, who, who was there on January 6th? It wasn't, you know. Uh, I observed in Latin America that almost all of Latin America are open societies, you know, with the exception of Venezuela and Cuba. So there doesn't seem to be any contradiction between Latin American culture or Hispanic culture and open societies or democracy and, and, and human rights on the other. And if there's no contradiction, then we can relax about uh, the, the growth of Hispanic culture in America. It's not going to undermine democracy. I see no evidence for that whatsoever. Um, I want to affirm that Huntington is his, correct historically. Of course it's true that we were his, predominantly Anglo-Protestant, and that was the originating condition of our experiment in democracy. Totally true. But Huntington and others insist it has to stay that way for us to remain democratic forever in the future. And this is not true. We can withstand cultural change and pluralism. We have withstood that. Uh, and so we can relax about uh, ongoing change. That doesn't mean all change is good. We can push back on the stuff that we think is unhelpful or undemocratic. But, you know, his particular concern about Hispanic immigration is just way off. Yeah, one of the things I've always been struck by is how easily people become Americanized once they, yeah. once they move here and how capacious the culture and the creed that goes with it, you know, is. So, you know, if you read, for instance, the letters from the British colonial governors back to London, they're constantly complaining that the colonists don't want to vote the taxes to pay their salaries as as administrators because Americans, you know, just don't like to pay taxes. And of course, you, you know, you look at uh, immigrants who come to this country, whether they're uh, people who came from Central and Eastern Europe, as my forebearers did, but or Korean immigrants or Hispanic immigrants, and a lot of them end up in the Republican Party, you know, arguing for lower taxes. It's just a it's it, it's a culture. This is, I guess, what you know Joe Nye calls soft power. This is the stickiness, the attractiveness of our our uh, culture to people. Paul, I want to explore one part of this though. The sort of Christian nationalist temptation that you describe in the book seems to overlap somewhat with the divisions we've seen in the Republican Party between a more internationalist uh, and isolationist wings of the party. And some of that seems to have to do with this whole issue of democracy promotion and whether that's an appropriate uh, objective for U.S. foreign policy. Could you talk about that a bit? So I think the political right, I think the Republican Party is a coalition between nationalists and conservatives. And, and when I say the word conservative, I mean in the sort of pre-2016 sense. It's almost, almost libertarian in sensibility. Um, and I just accept that that's the shape of the political right. It's that coalition. Now, within that coalition, I'm definitely conservative, wrote a whole book denouncing nationalism, but I recognize kind of that's the shape of the political right these days. We, we differ sharply on foreign policy and on the purpose and size of government, of course. Um, a nationalist, uh, Donald Trump was very clear 
that he didn't see a point to promoting democracy. He thought it was intrinsically impossible because to him, democracy is inextricably tied with our unique culture and why bother trying to export it and all that. Um, and I think he's wrong about that. I think the last 250 years of the growth of democracy disproved that. Um, more to the point, I think uh, democracy abroad is directly beneficial for American national security interests. I want to make a selfish argument for this, right? When, when other nations share our values, they won't be threats to us, and they will likely be trading partners for us. They can make us rich and safe. Uh, the growth of our ideals, it's kind of like an, an outer perimeter of our own security, right? We've got our inner perimeter of our, of our physical land boundaries and a, and a wall which, you know, and all that, but our outer perimeter are friendly countries that share our values. So the more we're, we live in a world that reflects our values, the safer we are. And, and I love to push that fence as, as far out as possible, which is why NATO expansion was a great idea, which is why the growth of democracy in Africa, Latin America, Asia is a great idea. Of course, we're not going to roll in with tanks and force democracy. We've never done that except in Japan, and, and it kind of worked. Right? We've never really forced democracy in others. But when we can encourage it, when we can put our thumb on the scale and say, look, yeah, we're on this side, if we can encourage the protesters in Iran, if we can encourage the protesters in Hong Kong, if we can say, yes, that's, the, yeah, we, we ally with it, we agree with them, it's only to our benefit to see those ideals championed in every corner of the world. I want to talk a little bit about history and heritage. I very much agree with what you just said about you know democracy. By the way, the founders who get a lot of attention from Christian nationalists were very clear that the experiment in Republican government that they were launching was not going to be able to survive forever in a world that was hostile to democracy. And the founder of the Republican modern Republican Party, Abraham Lincoln, believed that in spades. And so it's what you say is very, I think, deeply rooted in our history. But because history has become such a battleground now, and I, I should say to listeners that Paul, you advertise in your book the fact that you are at some point going to write yet another book in which you take on the progressive woke left, uh, and and I <laughs> Indeed, look forward. Yeah. I look forward to reading that too after you get done with the Afghanistan book. But because history has now become such a battleground, how should we think about you know history versus heritage? You write in the book that you know we we need to be reverent about the uh, seeds of our system that were planted by the founders, but we can't just put our history into a, you know, sort of glass case and, and just venerate it. It has to be looked at in a, in a critical light as well. How do you square the circle? I mean, because, you know, on the one hand, I find myself uh, irritated by uh, people who want to argue that the history of the United States is just the history of a series of problems, you know, the problem of race, the problem of class, etc., the history of the United States is is full of episodes that are uh, dark and that deserve to be examined. But overall, it's a history of a country where liberty is unfolding and evolving over time. And, and there seems to be a lack of balance in all this. How do you strike a balance, you know, in these history wars? Yeah, and this great question. And this is a really, uh, and balance is the right answer, right? Um, I find sometimes, to, to be a bit cliched here, 
On the right, you find a very triumphalist vision of history where you know, we can do no wrong. And on the left, you find the opposite. You find uh, you know, a defeatist vision of history where we can do no right, um, you know, where America is just a, a long, long litany of sins. I think it's important for us to have some, first of all, knowledge of history. I'm just shocked at how historically illiterate you know, most Americans are. Um, and, and even some, and cultivate some gratitude, uh, some gratitude and, and uh, reverence uh, is even not too strong a word uh, for the achievements of the past. All right, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, has this thing about how you need to uh, recognize that we've done great things in the past and, and that we want to continue doing them together in the future. And that's kind of what makes a country. Uh, and uh, I, think he's, I think he's right about that. So it's good. So patriotism is good. So it's good for us to cultivate gratitude for what came before. Um, warts and all, uh, flaws and hypocrisies and all, there's good things that this country has done and stood for in the past, and we need to teach them, honor them, venerate them, and hold them up as examples and inspiration. But not be captive by them, because they were also a bunch of racists who compromised with slavery and segregation. Like, so let's not be captive to them entirely, and let's be free to do better. The ultimate respect you can pay to the past is to do better than the past. Uh, and I think that's the attitude you need to take is have that gratitude and use that inspiration to do one better in your day, in your generation. Um, and so I would invite you know all Americans to do that. Understand American history, read American history, appreciate, be grateful for it, and then ask, what's our fight today and how can we overcome today? Yeah, I want to pull a little bit on one thread there. I mean, as a former army officer, uh, there's a commission now that's been created to rename a number of American army bases that were named after Confederate officers. And uh, there's a lot of pushback about that, obviously, because you know, some, you know, storied names like Fort Bragg, you know, will be retired and replaced as the result of this. I, I have to say that, you know, although I, I'm, you know, I am conservative and I, you know, I believe in honoring our past, I've always found it odd that, you know, we have had this cult of insurrectionists, <laughs> essentially, embedded in, you know, in our public spaces. And it seems to me perfectly appropriate to take down Confederate statues, which, by the way, were erected in the late 19th century as a, you know, a, uh, a pertinence of the effort to essentially disenfranchise African-Americans who had been liberated from slavery by the Civil War and given the vote. So this was a, you know, th these statues were not innocent, you know, memorials to our history. They were part of a, a, a fairly vicious ideology that was racist. And I just don't think there's anyone who knows anything about the history of the 19th century South, you know, I think understands that. Uh, and I, I completely agree. And I think this is a great example that shows precisely uh, the boundaries of how and when and where to respect and honor and appreciate the past. Look, we want to appreciate and cultivate uh, the best of our past. So put up a statue of George Washington, but not Robert E. Lee, not Jefferson Davis, right? What, did, what does Jefferson Davis stand for that we want to honor today? Nothing. Guy was a traitor, uh, and he, he's responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of Americans. He, gets, he should get no statues here. Of course, keep him in the history books. Where, where do Confederate symbols belong? The history books and, and the cemeteries and, and the battlefields. And that's, that's it, right? They, they don't belong in public squares. Uh, and you don't need to name roads and schools after, after them. 
Um, I actually live in an area in Virginia that used to be named for Robert E. Lee, and they just recently changed it. I think that's a good thing. Uh, there were people who advocated a couple of years back, tear down all the statues to Davis and Lee, and also tear down the statues to Washington and Jefferson because they were racist and slave owners. No, I, I you know, they were flawed men who made horrible moral compromises whose, uh, I'd say, net contribution to the nation was positive. I'm talking about Washington now and Jefferson because they created a system that we have inherited and built upon and improved. Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee didn't build anything. We didn't inherit it, and we rejected it and overthrew it and defeated it. But Jefferson and, and Washington and the others uh, built something positive. And we've, the, the ultimate tribute here is that the ideals they left us are the very ideals that we sort of condemned them with. Uh, and and, and that's, we should recognize the achievement that they made in leaving behind those principles. And so they are worth respecting and, and having statues to. Um, not the Confederates, but for the American founders, yes. Well, I agree with that. And on that balanced note of how we should think about uh, our our history, I think we we have to close our conversation. But Paul, thank you so much for your time today. It's been uh, great having you with Shield of the Republic. I, I hope when uh, you complete the, the volume on um, Afghanistan that my colleague Elliot Cohen and I can have you back when the two of us can discuss it with you, because as you know, Elliot was very involved in that 2008 Afghanistan policy review that uh, you were involved in as well, and which we'll be discussing, I think, next week on Shield of the Republic with Megan O'Sullivan. Um, and we'll be um, grading some of your homework uh, in in the terms of the transition memo you wrote uh, for the 2008 Bush-Obama transition. But for today, I think we'll have to bring this to a close. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for the conversation. I enjoyed it. Uh, I loved the, the wide ranging nature of it. I look forward to next week's uh, discussion with uh, Megan. I'll be a keen listener. And I, uh, I certainly enjoyed the chance to co-author with her the chapter in in uh, in, the, in Handoff. Um, it's a great book that uh, Steve Hadley put together. I was honored to be part of it and glad you'll be talking to Megan about it. We're looking forward to that too. Well, that's it for this episode of Shield of the Republic. If you enjoyed the um, show, please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, drop us a line at shieldoftherepublic at gmail.com. We also want to thank our longtime producer, Shay Katiri, who's moved on to other projects, but uh, did invaluable service for uh, Elliot and me as we got this show up and running.